to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. We are continuing our Bible study series from the letter of Paul to the Philippians. And the subtitle is Finding Joy in a Negative World. Okay, we're going to be talking about a specific thing. And so I'm going to ask a question that may seem unrelated, but it is related to it. What does it mean to live up to something? You've heard that phrase, to live up to. What does it mean to live up to? something to meet expectations okay it was like that yeah that's right (laughs) it's like amanda must have been looking at my notes i got to fulfill expectations what are some examples of of things that we would say we want something to live up to or we want to live up to or in what kind of context would we use that 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 uh that uh phrase to live up to can you think of an example lisa Okay, you, when you're doing something, Lisa, in particular, with her ministry slash job to the students she teaches, that she wants to live up to the expectations of the goals, of the standards, of the best she can do. Okay. How about when you want to go out to eat and you heard about a new restaurant and rave reviews and you're really hoping it lives up to its reputation, right? Okay. I mean, there's a lot of different things. It could be a meal. It could be an experience. You heard about this place to go on vacation and say, oh, we had a great time there, you know, or go visit another country, another culture or something. You got all these expectations and you hope that it's at least going to live up to what you really hope for is not just lives up to the expectations, but that it exceeds or passes the expectations. Yeah, Chris. All right. That's true. And that's a great spiritual application. That's going to go along with what our lesson is tonight, to live up to God's expectations of us. Especially so that we can get to the end of our lives and stand before God and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, Felix. Okay. To live up to the expectations of what it means to be a Christian. And that's a process we're in all of our lives. We keep making more and more and more progress. Were you going to say something, Amanda? That's a good example. You really hope your kids are going to live up to the expectations. Your kids or your grandkids that they'll live up to the expectations you have for them. All right. We're going to move on because that was just to kind of introduce the topic tonight. The topic title is Live Worthy of the Gospel. And that really is kind of the idea behind that. Paul's going to say something very similar to that. I had to kind of shorten it, condense it. But he's going to say we're going to need to live worthy of the gospel. All right? And it kind of has that whole idea of living up to the expectations that are there. All right? Um, Just as kind of a background, as we've studied the beginning of Philippians, the first part of chapter 1, the last couple of weeks, most recently, as we looked last week, Paul was sharing about how he had been suffering for the gospel and all the things that he had gone through. And last week, we talked specifically about how you can have joy even in the midst of suffering. Okay, And we're looking at Paul's example. And he mentions how he's in prison and that his imprisonment, rather than thwarting his goal of sharing the gospel because he's locked up, 
has actually served to advance the gospel because he's been able to share it with the guards and with all of his visitors because he's allowed to have visitors. And because of him doing that, the, the word has kind of spread through emperor, the, the emperor's household, you know, mm-hmm. a, an audience he probably wouldn't have had if he hadn't been locked up. He also talked about the fact that his imprisonment might end in death because when his case is heard, they could choose to execute him. But he says, if that happens, that's okay with me. If I live, great, I can do more stuff for Jesus. If I die, I get to go be with Jesus. In fact, he says, in fact, I'd kind of like to just go ahead and go be with Jesus. But since I can be used by God here, he's probably going to let me stay. And um, so that's probably what's going to happen. So we ended last week with him basically saying he kind of anticipates being set free to continue his ministry. All right. And that brings us up to the passage we're going to look at tonight, which is just a couple of verses. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. All right. Um, I'm going to back up to verse 25 to kind of get a run in so you get the background. Right after he said something about, I don't mind going on to be with Jesus. I don't mind staying here. I'll probably end up staying here so I can help you. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So I anticipate being able to come and see you again. Verse 27 starts our passage for tonight. Only, in light of all that, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. That you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he starts this um, passage we're looking at tonight with this word only. What does that mean, only? All these things... I might die, I might not, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. If I stay, I can do more for him. In fact, I want to come see you, you know, and you can be full of confidence and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Only, it's kind of a way of saying, no matter what happens, be sure to do this, okay? It's kind of like, no matter what or just one thing I want to really emphasize in light of whatever's going to happen, above all, at all costs, this is what needs to happen. What is that one thing? He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul uses this concept in a number of places. In Ephesians 4.1, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says, walk in a manner worthy of God. Colossians 1.10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Those are all very similar what is he trying to communicate? He says, in light of all the stuff that's going on in my life, going on in your life, I hope to come see you, but even if I don't, this is the one thing you need to really focus on. How would you summarize that? Be about the Father's business. That's good. What else would that include? Okay. Your conduct, your integrity. All right. What else? Your conversation and your lifestyle should match what Christ expects of you. That's a good summary. 
Any other thoughts? Yeah, to quote Paul, walk in the spirit. And the side benefit is that we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, which we're supposed to be getting rid of. All right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So he's trying to say live up to the gospel. What is the gospel? What does the word gospel mean? Good news. You know, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Basically what he's saying is you've got this relationship with Jesus, and it's because you've heard the good news All right. And that gospel is not just the good news, but it's the standard of the faith that we have. He says, now live up to that. You've made that commitment. You've made that decision to follow Jesus. Now live up to it. Okay. We started off with that idea of what does it mean to live up to something? It means fulfilling the expectations. Fulfill the expectations that God has put before you that are a result of responding to the gospel. Okay. That means we live differently because of the grace that we've received. Um, that has made us a child of God. How do we know what that is? We live according to what the Bible teaches. So basically what Paul is saying, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. I'm going to stop right there. So what he's saying is, only, no matter what happens to me, I want to hear these things. Because you're living up to the expectations that God has. Now, what are these things? That's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. In fact, if you want to follow up and do a deeper study, I really encourage you to to not turn tonight, but go to Colossians 1. I read from that before. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He's got a whole other list there of things that are part of our life, our lifestyle, the things that we should be doing. All right. But our goal tonight is to look at what he says here in Philippians. So he says, no matter what happens to me, this is the stuff I want to hear about you. And Paul hears it. Now, he's not into gossip, but he gets reports from the churches that he founded. We find that over and over in his writings, too. He says, well, I heard about this and I heard about that, you know, and it's because people are traveling around the Roman Empire. And and, uh, he sends sometimes people to go to see how things are going in certain churches. He says, well, when I hear about you, this is what I want to hear about you. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. There's just three kind of categories that we have in this passage. Living worthy of the gospel includes. So if we're going to live up to this, these need to be things that we see in our own lives and our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. So living worthy of the gospel includes, number one, standing firmly united. Standing firmly united. So it's talking about not just us, but us in relationship to each other. So let's reread verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So where it says there that I want to hear that you're standing firm. You know, if Paul was familiar with our church and he was writing us, he says, when I hear about you, I want to hear that you guys are standing firm. That phrase standing firm is actually a military term. And they would have known about this because we mentioned this a couple weeks ago that Philippi um, was a very special town in the Roman Empire. It was mainly settled by people that had retired from the Roman army. So they're familiar with military terms. They have special privileges as Roman citizens that a lot of the rest of the Roman Empire does not have, okay? And he's, that term for standing firm is a term for Roman soldiers who stand side by side or back to back to fight 
together to protect one another and to resist the enemy. I think that's a great picture. He says, part of living up to the gospel is being there for each other, being with one another, having each other's backs, okay? He mentions three things here that are part of that unity. And unity is a big deal. It's a big theme um, in Scripture about God's people. Letter A is standing firm in unity of spirit. He says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. In what way does the Holy Spirit bring unity within the body of Christ? There's a lot of different ways, so it's not like there's only one right answer. I don't know if I can get it right. In what way or ways does the Holy Spirit bring unity? By giving us peace. By giving us peace? Like peace as far as peace in relationship with one another? That is true. Okay. Yeah, his work within us. I thought you were going the route of the, one of the fruits of the Spirit, peace, that we can be at peace with one another, but that fits too. That's included too. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to have unity when you're not at peace with each other. Right? Yeah, Lisa, how else does the Holy Spirit bring to unity? What? The Spirit Okay, as we're following the leading of the Holy Spirit, all right, um, then we're following the same purpose, which certainly would lead to unity. How else does the Holy Spirit bring, lead you to unity? He helps us to be earnest in the faith. Okay, yeah, yeah. John? He gives us a witness. Okay, yeah, he speaks to us. He gives witness. He brings confirmation to us of what is right and true. And, and if we're all on the same page, you know, it's easier to have unity when you're all on the same page. Yeah, and the Holy Spirit has a great part to play in that, okay? One that's not been mentioned, which is a real key one, is the fact that when we come to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. So we have his presence in us, and we see his presence in our brothers and sisters. And that common presence within us does that, all right? And I think another part of it, we've talked about this before, is that the Holy Spirit helps us to focus on the things that we have in common so that our differences don't have to divide us. Okay, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a lot of differences. I've used this as an illustration before. We could divide up into so many different groups based on different things. We could bait up, divide into different groups based on our gender. That's a lot more confusing today than it used to be, but we could divide up <laughs> into different groups based on our ethnicity, our country of origin, our we wouldn't do it, but our political leanings. You know, there's all different kinds of categories we could divide up into. And there's a lot of things that if we choose to focus on it, which we don't, there's a lot of things that could divide us. But because of the Holy Spirit and a lot of the things you already said, his focus on the word of God, his presence in our lives, the peace that he brings to us, we focus on the things that we have in common. All right? So... If we're going to live worthy of the gospel, if I'm going to live worthy, if you're going to live worthy of the gospel, we need to be firmly united as brothers and sisters in Christ. And one aspect is standing firm in the unity of the Spirit. The sec, yes, Junian. Courage. He can give us courage. He gives us power to be witnesses, which includes the boldness and the courage. In fact, we're going to talk about courage some more in one of the other points too. But that is an aspect of it too. The second one, letter B, is standing firm in unity of mind. He says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. What does that mean? What do you think Paul means when he says, I'd like to, you to be of one mind? We're going to read some more about that 
next week because he's going to continue on with this theme into chapter 2 in our lesson next week. But what do you think he means by having one mind? Vita. Yeah, that's going to be our passage next week, but that's the key right there is that if we want to have one mind, we don't need to just stick to our mind. But if we have the mind of Christ, okay, and we're all focused on having the mind of Christ, that is the key to having one mind. Yeah, Chris. That's true. You know, it's really sad. We don't want to focus on it, but it is really sad that there's a lot of disunity, which we already, you know, talked about with the Holy Spirit thing, and we're still in the middle of, that there is so much disunity because there isn't that binding together with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. There isn't that focus on one mind. And a lot of times it's because not everybody who claims to be Christians or even are Christians are not focused on having the mind of Christ and really agreeing with what God's Word says. Okay? What else is in that idea of standing firm in unity of mind? What does it mean to be unity in mind? Yeah, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and said they were all together in one accord. I guarantee you these same characteristics were a part of their gathering together. All right? I heard somebody over here starting to say something about the one mind thing. Yes, Felix. Yes, there's a little bit of disunity. Not as much as like in Corinthians or, or in Corinth. I mean, Corinth was bad, but there is a little bit of disunity in the church. That's why I think he's going to head, he's heading that way now, and next week we're going to see even more. And before he gets to the end of the, uh, of the, of the letter, he actually mentions two ladies that aren't getting along, and he says, listen, you ladies need to get, to get, get along, okay? So we're going to see that more and more throughout this letter. Now, does this idea of having unity of mind mean that we're all going to believe and agree on everything exactly the same? No, that never happened, would it? I mean, even when you get a husband and wife, this is Valentine's Day, by the way, happy Valentine's Day. If you got a husband and wife that have a fantastic relationship, doesn't mean they agree on everything, right? Now, obviously, we should agree on everything that's clear in God's Word. Exactly. But that doesn't mean that we're going to agree on everything. Like we talked about before, there's a lot of things that could divide us because of our different viewpoints, but whatever. But the important thing is that we are focused on the same thing. I think that's the idea, focus on the same thing. Lisa said something earlier about the Holy Spirit, which was true, about having the same goals and the same focuses. Focus, okay? That's the same thing with having a unity of mind. We're, on this, we're focusing on the same. We're focusing on what God's Word says. We're focusing on what God wants us to do. We're focused on God's plans and purpose as revealed in his word and as we are led by the Holy Spirit. Yes, Vida. When we get saved, so we are missionary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that puts us in the same mind, too. Yeah. Lynn, are you going to say something? Exactly. That's a great point. I wish I had put it in my notes. We've done whole Bible studies on that, 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 our minds, how key our minds are, and that Paul talks about how we have the mind of Christ. You know, now, we, we, we wrestle with that all the time, you know, because if we didn't, we wouldn't have to have our minds renewed. You know, I can tell you this if you want to write it in your note sheet. You can wrote, write down Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, you know, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be renewed in your minds, okay? And that's done through the word of God. Again, another reason why it's so important to spend time in God's Word, which we're doing tonight. So, The good thing is, it's just like the whole unity of spirit in the mind thing. The places where we may differ, again, we shouldn't be differing on our viewpoint of God's Word and what it says. But in the other areas where we differ, they can set those aside because of the more important 
truths of God's word and the work that he wants us to do for his kingdom. All right? And that leads us to number C, standing firm in unity of effort to spread the truth of the gospel. Okay? We see that in the last part of verse 27 when he says, I want to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, when he says they're striving side by side, I know that the standing firm, I mentioned to you that that's a military term of fighting a battle. Well, the striving side by side, he's kind of changing pictures. He's not talking about a battle there. These are words that are used for like athletic competitions. In other words, he's saying you're on the same team and you're working together. I mean, you know, any team sport, What's one of the biggest things they emphasize? It's not the individual, it's how the team works together. You may have an individual that stands out, like the quarterback or the one who makes the most points, but they can only be as great as they are if the whole team works together. And that's a whole theme in the Bible about how the body of Christ, we're all different parts, we've got to work together, we've got to be in unity. And that's the idea Paul's saying here, standing firm in unity of effort to spread the gospel. All right, working as a team, supporting one another, specifically, he says, for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel can mean spreading the gospel, but it can also mean standing for the truth of the gospel. And I think both are true, okay? That we are in unity, standing on the truth of the gospel, but we're also working together to spread the gospel. As I said, unity is a very important uh, key thought all through Scripture, And as Felix pointed out, it sounds like Paul's making a point there may be some problem with disunity, and that's definitely true. We're going to see more of that as we go through the letter. I'll get to you in just a second, Lynn. And I just want to point this out. I forgot to put it on your note sheet, but under this this point, you can put down John chapter 17. And that was Jesus' prayer after his discussion with the disciples in the upper room on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed a number of things, but one of the main things he prayed about was that his, his followers would have unity. Okay? So very important. And as Chris said earlier, it's, a, it's, it's so sad and such a shame that there's such disunity within the church universal. But God works with us, in us, and through us in spite of. And we try to do the best we can to maintain the unity and have that unity with those who are truly following Christ on the basis of God's word. Yeah, Lynn, you had your hand up. I wanted to finish all that before I got to you. That's a good point. The fact that we're united in the effort, it doesn't mean that, well, I can't share the gospel all by myself. I've got to have somebody else around. Now, granted, we can do a whole lot more together than we can do by ourselves. That's, that's how we support missionaries. That's how we have uh, any kind of plan, program, method that God lays on our hearts to spread the gospel. We can do more together than we can by ourselves. But yet each of us have our own part to play. And we can each share the gospel. As Lynn said, it's more of a unity of plan, a unity of focus, a unity of purpose of sharing the gospel, whether we do it by ourselves in this situation, in that situation, or we do it with a friend, or we go with a friend to talk to another friend, or door to door, or wherever it might be, or we do something as a big group, or we do something as a whole church. It's the same purpose. And you know, Satan's, one of Satan's biggest strategies as far as the church is concerned, he's got all kinds of strategies for us as individuals, is to divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. You know, that's, again, one of, the, one of a list of sad things is when you hear about church splits. Especially over things such as silly as, like, they can't dis- d- agree together on the color of carpet or, or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, but uh, if he can cause disunity, 
all right, then there's a problem. So living worthy of the gospel includes standing firmly united. And before we go on, that'd be a good thing to just look in our own hearts and say, okay, is that part of my character? Is that part of my walk with Christ? Am I firmly united with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, I don't always agree with them. And there's that one that kind of rubs me the wrong way. None of that happens in our church, by the way. It just happens out there other places. But, you know, there is that person that kind of rubs me the wrong way. But, but am I committed to unity in the body of Christ? Good thing to think about. The second thing is, okay, living worthy of the gospel includes refusing to be afraid of opponents. Doesn't mean we won't battle it, wrestle with it, but refusing to be afraid of the opponents. He's, Paul says, I want to hear this about you, okay? Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, it's interesting because that word there that's used for not frightened, this is the only place in the Bible that word is used. How do we know what it means? Because it's used through all kinds of other Greek literature. And what that word is used for in the rest of Greek literature is like a horse that has been spooked. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've seen it in a movie or whatever. Maybe you've had personal experience. You've got a horse, they're calm, confident, everything. Something spooks them, you know, a snake in the thing. or And all of a sudden, they're all jittery and they just want to take off and run. And Paul says, you don't need to be that way, all right? Not frightened, not spooked by anything that your opponents might do. Now, this is kind of a trivia thing. It depends upon Bible knowledge, so you may or may not know. But who were some of the opponents of Paul? Who opposed Paul? The Romans did. He's in prison in Rome. Yeah. Who else? The Jews who did not, were not willing to accept Jesus as their Messiah, which included Paul at one time. Okay? Who else were Paul's opponents? The Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin. Yep. There was this group, the technical term, biblical term is the Judaizers. These were Christians. There may have been some that weren't Christians in there too, who were had grown up as Jews and loved the Lord and they'd accepted Jesus as Messiah but they wanted to say that everybody else, including people that weren't Jews, if they wanted to follow Jesus, they had to do all the stuff the Jews did. All the guys had to be circumcised. They had to watch their diet according to Old Testament laws. In other words, they wanted to bring the law into it. And that was a big deal in the first century. And a lot of times that was what caused a lot of problems in the church because Paul would establish a church um, in the Gentile area. And when he left, some of these people would kind of come in and say, okay, now that you're Christians, there's something Paul forgot to tell you you got to keep all the Jewish law. And it was causing a lot of turmoil. And it led to a, one of the first big decisions in the early church. You read about it in Acts. I think it's Acts chapter 6, somewhere in there, 5 or 6. But anyway, they did not like Paul because Paul said, no, the Gentiles do not need to keep the Jewish law. They need to keep the moral law. They need to do what's right. But they don't need to do all this stuff. Okay? And then, of course, there were false teachers. All right? And then there were just plain unbelievers. So Paul is talking about the fact that he has opponents, but now he's saying, you know, I want to hear that you guys, with your opponents, are not frightened. You're not being intimidated. You're not being pushed around. Now, he's not saying we should be aggressively ugly to them. We need to love everybody. But he says to know that they're not, they're not, they're not making you compromise. They're not pushing you around. Not, you're not holding back. You're not scared of them. You're still taking a stand. So who are the Philippians' opponents? Well, he doesn't name them, so we don't know, but probably the same ones that Paul had. You know, as they stand for Christ, they're going to come in conflict with the Roman Empire. 
Remember, it was in Philippi, we read about that in our first lesson, Acts chapter 16, where they arrested him, threw him in jail, beat him, threw him in jail, okay? Um, and so the people that he, got, that he left behind that live in Philippi, they're going to have to wrestle with that same opposition. They're going to have to wrestle with people who are opposed to them because they're preaching, teaching, believing in some different god than the Romans' gods. Um, you know, the Jews, every town where Paul went to preach... Some of the Jews accepted Jesus as Messiah. They became Christians, but there were some that didn't. And they would fight against the ones that did. So even though Paul left town to go start another church, the church there has to deal with the Jewish people that didn't agree with Paul and his message. You know, they're still there. So they've got the same opponents. Now, we may not have to deal with opponents. Our opponents may not include Jewish people that are saying, Jesus isn't the Messiah and whatever or people that are going to try to tell us to live by the law, but what kind of opponents do we have to deal with? I mean, if we're going to bring this down to today, and we need to refuse to be afraid of our opponents, what, what are the opponents that we face today as Christians? What did you say, Amanda? False religions, yeah, just like then. Felix? Okay, so there could be opponents because of people that don't stand for the truth, like hopefully we are. They believe differently than we do. Yeah, those... Non-believers. I mean, do you ever get pushback from people that aren't believers because you're a believer? If you're not, I hope they know you're a believer. <laughs> now, not all non-believers are going to give you pushback. There's a lot of non-believers out there that's like, live and let live. You want to believe in God? I don't care. Just leave me alone. But there are some people that are pretty aggressive. You know, it's really interesting to me that there are some atheists that fight so hard against a God they don't believe in. <laughs> But anyway, I know they believe people are being deceived, so I'm not trying to make fun. Yeah, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The devil wants to take... I'm sorry, I thought you were through. Yeah. You know, we're seeing this more and more today. Okay? Push back from our culture. That if we say anything that stands upon the standard of the word of God that's contrary to our culture... And we can get up all day and say, we should love one another. And our culture say, yeah, we agree with that. But to get up and say, and this is what God's standards are about what love looks like. No, no, you can't say that. Okay? And, I, and I've said this many times before. Unless there's a revival, it's just going to get worse. And so this point, 10, 15 years ago, it's like, ah, it's not that big a deal. I'm not that afraid of my opponents. We don't have that many in America. We've got a lot more now. And they're getting more vocal. And they could get a lot more than vocal. You know? And so... This does apply to us. People who oppose Christianity, God, his standards, and everything else. But Jesus spoke about that. John 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So he says, don't be frightened. Instead, he said, have courage. He goes on in verse 28, says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, that's a little bit like, what does he really mean by that? If you take a stand and you're not afraid and you've got courage, this is a sign of their destruction, but it's also a sign of your salvation. What does that mean? I'm just going to kind of explain that because we want to get to our third point. Okay, their courage in the face of opposition on your note sheet was number one or first bullet point proof of God's judgment on their opponents. Now, in what way was their courage proof of God's judgment on their opponents? 
He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. How is that a sign of their destruction? What I think he means by this is that it, courage in the face of opposition points to the confidence that believers have in God's salvation and their justice, and that if, if their persecutors would be willing, and some do, are willing to recognize, it's like, there's something to this. I mean, you hear testimony, you can hear testimony after testimony after testimony, especially of Christians in countries where persecution is a lot worse than ours. And they take a stand for their faith, and sometimes you hear stories about how some of the times the people that were persecuting them said, there's got to be something to this. Why would they die for this? You know, why would they be willing to put their lives and their families and their occupations at risk? Okay. And because of that, there's obviously the, the opposite side of that is if I don't get into step with that and there really is a God, I'm in trouble. And I can't help but think that maybe Paul was thinking back to his own persecution of believers. You know, Paul doesn't talk about it. Not that I can remember anyway. If you think of a time, let me know. But that how many times perhaps in his persecution of Christians and they stood for their faith, how did God use that in his heart to prepare his heart for when he finally had that encounter with Jesus, you know, that it's like, yeah, there really is something to this. I guarantee he looked back and said, now I understand why they stood so strong, because it's real. But it could be that God actually used that leading up to it to prepare his heart for it, you know. But he says that uh, their courage and face opposition was proof of God's judgment on their opponents, but it's also proof of their salvation. How is our courage in face of opposition? Well, because the Bible says that we're going to be persecuted. And as we stand for that, it shows that we really believe what we say we believe in. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus would be persecuted. So if you're being persecuted, and it's not because you're being a jerk, there's sometimes people claim to be Christians and they do and say things that are basically being a jerk, and they say, I'm being persecuted. It's like, no, you're being a jerk, <laughs> you know. But if you're really loving people and just taking a stand for the truth and you're being persecuted, that's a sign that, you know what, you're doing something right. You're doing something right. It's, it's proof for your salvation. I love this quote from the Pillar Commentary on Philippians. It says, Christians must not flee, compromise, give in, back down, or be divided when they face hostile opposition. Okay. But again, please keep in mind, that doesn't mean that we need to be belligerent, antagonistic, we just need to stand for the truth in love. But stand for the truth in love. You've got to have that balance. Okay? That's, I think that's one of the reasons it says that Jesus came in grace and truth. He was full of grace, which is God's love extended to offer what we don't deserve. But he stood for the truth. I think it's greatly illustrated by the woman caught in adultery when she came. And Jesus was her advocate, basically. He says, hey, the first one of you that's not guilty of sin, you cast the first stone. So where did they go? They left, but he didn't leave it at that. He says, but go and sin no more. He was full of grace, but he stated the truth, okay? So, living worthy of the gospel, okay? It includes standing firmly united and refusing to be afraid of opponents. And let me, before I go on, let me just say this. If sometimes it does get you concerned about the opposition, don't feel like you're a second-class Christian. Just pray. Say, God, help me to stand strong. Help me not to be afraid. Help me to just lovingly stand for the truth. All right. The third thing is being willing to suffer. We don't like this one, but being willing to suffer. Verses 29 and 30, which wraps it up for us tonight. For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Going to have to go through this a little bit quicker, but being willing to suffer. Um, the thing that can help us, especially when we're suffering, when we're going through difficulty, and, and this can include difficulty that we face just because we're serving, serving Jesus, not necessarily because other people are opposing us. It would include that. But any suffering that we go through because we're living for Jesus. Letter A, remember our faith is a result of God's grace. Our faith is a result of God's grace. That's what he's saying here. He says, for it's been granted to you. That word for granted is derived from a, a, a same root as God's grace. It's not the same word, but it's the same root. It's been granted. It's been something that's been given to you. Remember, grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. Okay, so when it's talking about he granted this, he gave us something. It's a favor from God. Our faith is a result of God's grace. Um, the greatest passage for that is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, all of us have no problem with agreeing with that and saying, that's great. Thank God for his grace. Glad he stirred my heart to have faith. You know, because God's involved in that. You know, without God's involvement, we wouldn't even have faith. You know, God's involved from beginning to end. All right? But the second part is harder. Remember, our suffering is a result of God's grace. Say, what? But that's what Paul's saying. He said, it's be granted to you. It's a gracious thing. It's a gift that God, it's something God has given to you for the sake of Christ that you should believe, but also to suffer. That's weird. Why is it God's grace that we have the privilege to suffer? You were going to say something, Lynn? Yeah. Can't take a lot of comments, but go ahead. Tell me what you want to say. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's just one of many. As we suffer and handle it right, God uses that in other people's lives. In Paul's experience in, Cor- in Corinthians, in Philippi was exactly that. He went through that persecution, and it led to the jailer and his family being saved and probably a whole bunch of other people. Okay, Chris, I'm going to take your comment, and that's going to have to be the last one because i got to wrap this up. Go ahead. Yeah, when we are persecuted and when we're suffering for that reason, we're suffering with Christ. I just made a little list. We've done Bible studies before. I preached sermons on the benefits of suffering. It sounds weird, but according to God's word, there are benefits of suffering. Let me just give you a couple really quick, and then we've got to wrap this up. It can take our eyes off the things of the world, okay? It weeds out superficial believers. I've said many times, I don't pray for it, I don't want it, but persecution would probably be one of the best things for the church in America because it would say, are, are you really a Christian? Is, is this really important to you? You know, um, It strengthens the faith of those who endure. It causes growth and maturity. It stores up future reward. It serves as an example to those who follow. You mentioned that, Lynn. It shows that we're following Jesus' example, Okay. Paul's going to talk about that some more in this letter, that we suffer just like Jesus did. We're following his example. So should we seek suffering? No. But when it comes, we can rejoice in the fact that God is going to make it into a blessing. All right. I mean, James had a lot to say about it. You know, um, consider it joy when you suffer. Uh, Anyway, that's a whole other study. But We see the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 after they had been beaten because this was the second time they were arrested for sharing about Jesus. It says, Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
Let me read a couple more scriptures, then we've got to wrap this up. Oh, we've got one more point, and I'll give it to you real quick. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay. The last point on your note sheet, letter C. Remember, we aren't in this alone. When you really struggle, just remember you're not by yourself. Going back to the first point, we need to be in unity. We're there for each other. Paul said this in verse 30. Um, you know, you, you've been granted the opportunity to suffer for his sake. You're engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. They saw the conflict when he was there, started the church, and has probably heard a lot about other things. And he says, I'm going through it. You're going through it. I suffered a lot, but you know what? You're suffering too. We're in this together. One last scripture, 1 Peter 5, 8 to 10. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, as we wrap this up, Paul challenges us. Live worthy of the gospel. How can I know I'm living worthy of the gospel? Well, there's a couple lists in a couple places, but from this passage tonight, am I standing firmly united with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I refusing to back down, to be afraid of my, of, of my opponents? Am I taking a stand lovingly, but am I taking a stand? And am I willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? Or does that cause me to back away? Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had together tonight, looking at your word. May it challenge and encourage us and help us, Lord God. Help us to live worthy of the gospel, to live worthy of the call you've placed on our lives, to live worthy of the fact that you saved us from our sins. Help us not to be intimidated by the enemy. And Lord, help us not to fall into the trap of disunity and frustration with each other that puts up barriers. And help us not to fall into the trap of responding to those who oppose us in a way that's ungodly or unchristlike, so it drives them farther away rather than draws them in. And God, if there are opponents that we have now, use us in their lives to point people to point them to Jesus and soften their hearts. And may our stand for the truth in love be something that causes them to take a second look and to think about it a little bit more, maybe come to know you. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.